Hello and welcome to Gather Round, the podcast series sharing stories from Aberdeen Archives, Gallery and Museums. In every episode, we'll be talking to members of the team and our partners about the collection, special exhibitions, the histories of our fascinating venues and tales of Aberdeen. In this episode, listen in as Martin Hall, archivist for Aberdeen City and Aberdeenshire Archives, discusses Scotland's witch panic and what the archives tell us about the Aberdeen Witch Trials of 1597. Please be advised, this episode contains sensitive material that listeners may find discomforting. The world has known too many witch hunts. The pattern of these events, seen and remembered through films and stories, is familiar to us. The moral panic, the angry mob, the innocents horribly murdered to satisfy a social cruelty. We think of the witch finder, of the crowd, of the fantastical and macabre accusations. The torch, the flame, the suffering. We see an eruption of violence that terrifies us, but one that never seems to be far from the surface of society, even in our own time. Perhaps we feel comfortable examining the cruelty of the witch finders because the nature of the accusations and the ostentatious grotesquery of the proceedings allows us to separate ourselves and our own time from the brutality, spite and opportunism of the early modern horror of the witch hunt. Perhaps we return to the atrocity of the witch panic as often as we do because as we see in dramatic works such as The Crucible, in some ways we've never truly moved beyond it. We will be examining the Aberdeen Witch Trials of 1597. Before we look at the period, the Aberdeen of then, it will be helpful to say a few words about the surviving documentary evidence that we have today. Our first point of reference for any historical event in Aberdeen are the council registers. These are handwritten minute books, uh, guild membership records, court books and sometimes accounts that record a shifting pattern and remit of official business within the city from the first volume of 1398 until they are replaced by printed minutes in 1883. The council registers are the oldest and most complete records of the life of any Scottish borough and our first references to the 1597 witch trials are found within them. They consist of little more than a note from the council that the Dean of Guild has exerted himself to a tremendous degree in persecuting witches throughout his tenure. The Council's primary concern the Dean of Guild's zeal has impacted his private business, which leads to an early and perhaps unsurprising example of a financial bailout, as the Dean is recompensed for his charnel house efforts. The decision recorded in the register is sparse, nebulously worded, but it points us to the Dean of Guild's official accounts. The Dean was an officer of the Council and convener of the town's merchant guild, he was responsible for managing the Gilgrey accounts and the funds in those accounts were intended for a number of uses within the town. As they recorded the income and expenditure for a major portion of the town's civic resources, those accounts were, in theory, meticulously maintained. Fortunately, in the case of William Dunn, Dean of Guild for the years of the witch panic, that happened to also be true in practice. Fortunate as well that the accounts are among those which have survived to the present day. The Scotland of 1596 was at a difficult time, year after year of poor harvests, coupled with egregious seed crop fraud, saw malnourishment, starvation and widespread begging. Plague was rampant in Fife, the country's currency was collapsing and radical Presbyterians had tried to usurp the king's ministers. There was pressure at every level of society from the communities of the villages to the halls of the elites. Witchcraft and sorcery were taken very seriously being criminal offences in Scotland since the passing of a statute in 1563, just after the Reformation. Though there was provision within that law to try accusations of witchcraft using the local courts, 
there was never any recorded attempt made locally to treat these crimes as anything less serious than the four pleas of the Crown. None of those could be tried by any court not appointed by royal authority. The most common way to apply for such authority was to request a royal commission, and the borough of Aberdeen did so twice between the winter of 1596 and the spring of 1597. Aberdeen's first commission was granted for the trial of certain named individuals, absolute in its authority but limited in scope. Janet Wishart, her son Thomas Lees, her daughters who are not named in the text of the commission, and Isabel Cocky are the only persons who are fit to be tried under the authority of the granted judiciary. The commission was issued on the 2nd of February 1597 and sentence had been carried out in its name within three weeks. The success of this first commission, however, carried the seat of the second within it. If any of those accused and tried by the court should, in the course of their trial, name anyone not already on the list, then the commission was powerless to pursue action against them. With this in mind, the borough applied to the Crown and the Privy Council for a second commission. This one, however, was not limited by name. It was limited by time. For a period of five years, the General Commission of Judiciary allowed the Lord Provost of Aberdeen, in this case Alexander Rutherford, as Commissioner, and Thomas Leslie, as his Sheriff Deputy, to try anyone suspected of witchcraft and sorcery, as well as anyone accused of trafficking with a suspected witch or sorcerer. Letters were sent throughout Aberdeenshire to the Protestant ministers in the towns and villages of the hinterland, instructing them to gather testimony on named individuals, to prepare ditties, to lay the groundwork for witch trials. Cooperation in this benefited both the Commission and the Church. The courts would have been supplied with a steady stream of supporting documents, and the resulting trials would ensure the parishioners were exposed to a salutary and graphic example of what happened to those who strayed too far from the path outlined by the minister's sermons. The judiciary appointed by the Royal Commissions had no real requirements in terms of legal qualifications or learning. This much is almost immediately apparent when examining those records still extant from the period. The courts that were set by judicial commission were legally binding and remarkably ad hoc. The survival of any records from the trials is remarkable itself. The sentences of the court were enacted almost immediately, obviating the need for an appeals process and the administrative officials of the court were local magistrates and burgesses. They had no training, no experience in trying serious crimes, and the commission was by its nature incapable of surviving the enactment of its final verdict. There was no machinery in place to retain the details of these trials in the long term, yet a surprising amount managed to survive to the present day. Even though the commission was formally dissolved at the conclusion of its stated and appointed business, some of its papers were retained, though by whom exactly it is impossible to say. The reason behind their survival can only be guessed, but it is likely to be spurred by one of two motives, either as a receipt for the Dean of Gill's efforts in administration of the witch hunt, or as evidence to the Privy Council of the Commission's necessity. Much of what survives in terms of the Commission's records relate to the early part of the procedure of a witch trial. The bulk of the records are compiled ditties, lists of accusations ranged against the victims of the hunt, as well as much rarer confessions usually produced later in the Commission's life in order to either shore up a draft ditty or to submit to the Privy Council. Some of the ditties are obviously drafts or pre-trial versions of the final accounts that would be put to the assize. These show us a number of things. To take the example of Janet Wishart's ditty, the manner of recording makes it clear that she had no legal representative, no advocate to argue in her defence. The accusations, listed point by point, have notes in the margins of the page, such as deny it ever he was sent for her before her decease. 
usually countered with a curt statement such as proven by Thompson. In the eyes of the appointed commission, and all too frequently in the opinion of the Assize, the testimony gathered by the ditties was sufficient proof for conviction itself. Any argument put forward by the accused in her defence is phrased as deny it, and usually swatted aside by a flat proven. The terminology used and the method of recording it is a strong indicator that the people brought before the Commission to answer their accusations were not permitted any representative to speak on their behalf. The ditties, in addition to their emphatic insistence on the guilt of the accused, are useful for exposing the social nature and influences of the panic. The lists of charges are compiled by the testimony of neighbours, people who knew the accused and were able to inform the Commission of their reputation or alleged actions. There is much about the accused, those who stood trial for witchcraft, convicted according to the standard of the Commission, which can never be known. Most of the information we have is at best surmised or implied from what few records survive, and those records by their nature were designed to portray evidence that the accused had committed crimes so dreadful that they needed to be put to death, and put to death horribly, so that others could learn from it. So we must see what we can discover about the accused in the full knowledge that the sources we have on them are hostile to them, and frequently forgot or omitted their names in the process of consigning them to their doom. Part of the problem driving the witch panic lies in the friction between the terminology of the 1563 law, the cultural elite's concept of witchcraft, and the idea of witchcraft as seen by the community. The statute prohibits witchcrafts. The term uses the plural, strongly indicating that it was intended to prosecute acts of witchcraft, such as malefic curses or poisonings, rather than the act of being seen to be a witch or having the reputation of being a witch. In addition to this, the line between folk healer, charmer, prognosticator and witch is routinely blurred throughout every witch panic in Scottish history. Not all of these classes of people would have been seen as a threat under the category of witch by the 1563 law, but every single one of them would all too easily fall into jeopardy if their neighbours decided to redefine their actions as being the actions of someone who can be seen as a witch. A charm intended to heal, if believed to be effective, could just as easily be a curse intended to harm. An argument prior to an accident or an illness could just as easily be seen as a curse. A walk in the woods could either be foraging for supplies or consulting with demonic powers. Any of the helpful activities undertaken by a member of the community with knowledge of healing or charms could easily be deemed the actions of a witch if the charmer ran foul of the wrong people. An excellent example of this is seen in the case of Gilbert Fiddler during the 1597 panic. Gilbert was a cobbler who had previously made a pair of unsatisfactory shoes for Lady Errol. Subsequently to that, he'd been a fugitive for some time. On returning to Ochmacoy, he went into hiding but was arrested and thrown into prison at Slains. As his mother-in-law was the previously convicted witch, Janet Leask, the association should have been enough to damn him. The extraction of his name from Andruman during a confession would seem almost too much. Yet the accusation, passed down from the Earl of Errol to the Assize that Fiddler had ensorcelled and cursed his late wife's shoes, was dismissed. After spending over a year rotting in Slane's prison, he was released. In the case of Gilbert Fiddler, we see a rare member of a trade catching a lucky break and being spared the flame. Few were so fortunate. The first named individual tried for witchcraft was Helen Gray, convicted at Slane's by deputes acting in the name of the Earl of Errol, 
at the tail end of January 1597. For unknown reasons, even though she was found guilty, the justice's depute moved to continue the doom-giving on her, maintaining her in prison for an unspecified period prior to transportation to Aberdeen, subsequent retrial at the end of April, and execution by burning on the same day. Helen Gray is the first name we know of, and her initial conviction predates by a scant few days the granting of Aberdeen's first commission for witch trials. She's also unlikely to be the only accused witch tried at Slane's. The trial of Catherine Gerard at Aberdeen in April alludes to associations and confessions by those burned at Slane's as witches. As the panic gathered pace in its initial phase, the first Royal Commission was granted. The document allowed the town of Aberdeen to perform its slapdash judiciary, specifically to try John at Wishart, her son, Thomas Lees, his daughters, and Isabel Cocky. Grey would still have been in prison at Slane's, but word would have reached Aberdeen of her incarceration and of the accusations that pointed to inhabitants of their own town. Wishart would go to the fire without ever having been interrogated, though the marginal notes in her ditty indicate she had the opportunity of denying her crimes. Albeit that denial, as we've stated previously, was outweighed by the existence of the accusations themselves. With the trial, sentencing and death of Janet Wishart, the whole panic nearly blew itself out. The reason for that is that Wishart's sentencing was carried out without any interrogation. And without interrogation, she would offer up no further names. Beyond her own family and Isabel Cocky, the commission would have nothing further to work with. That was all to change when the trial of her son, Thomas Lees, began. When Thomas was tried, the authorities made sure to interrogate him, incriminating further people and necessitating the granting of the town's wider general commission. Even though Thomas's interrogation never survived, the text of his ditty carries hints of the privation and misery the accused suffered. Off-hand references in the accusations note that he had been imprisoned in the vault of St Nicholas Church since the preceding September, spending the winter in chains in the darkness. The ditty also alludes to diverse women who came to the window of the Kirk vault to beseech Thomas and his mother Janet not to identify them as witches. The accusations levelled against women later on sometimes see the phrase as testified by the umphile Thomas Lays before his death. Their pleas, if they happened, would not be enough to save them. The nature of the crimes of which the purported witches of 1597 were accused were consistent with few variances from a standard form. The main factor in the variation is simply the source from which the authorities obtained the details of the alleged crime. This division is simple to explain. Crimes attested to by neighbours follow patterns of medicine, enchanting, malefice and potion crafting. Crimes supported by confession of the individual witch hew much more closely to patterns seen in the textbooks used to inform the actions of witch hunters the Malleus Maleficarum, for example, and Newes from Scotland, a 1591 pamphlet about the North Berwick witch trials written by the advisor responsible for King James VI's 1597 book Demonology, which was in its final stages of production at the time of this panic. These include demonic packs, the kissing of the devil on the anus, and large foul-spirited revels that revolted the sensibilities of the time and stoked a sense of horror of a perception that the accused were something inhuman. Something else that is much more heavily present in confessions than in accusations are the names of accomplices. Accusations tend to be a list of grievances, prejudices and grudges received from the community and distilled into a list intended to destroy one individual. With the trial of Janet Wishart, that seems to have been precisely what happened. 
She was condemned, denied it, and was subsequently sentenced and burnt. The ruling and managerial classes in society had little interest in using the terrifying instrument of the witch hunt to settle petty, personal and domestic disputes. What was far more useful was evidence of a conspiracy. Whether they believed one genuinely existed or they were determined to create one out of whole cloth, the results were the same. Suspects were interrogated, torture was freely used in obtaining the desired confessions. Under torture, the subjects were required to name names, and they did frequently. They were required to confess to actual sorcery, actual crimes of witchcraft, the forms of which bore no relation to the accusations generally recorded in the ditties. These were terrors known from books written and read by a class that had no presence in the towns. And so, the substance of these confessions tends to much more closely resemble the confessions of witches accused of mainland Europe than the rumours, gossip and grudges of the local accusations. In the case of Janet Wishart's son, Thomas Lees, he confesses to holding revels at the Market Cross in which he led a dance of the devil's minions for some hours, an event witnessed only by one other tortured prisoner. He confesses to supernatural murder, to the summoning and binding of evil spirits, and to what appears to be the sacrifice of his own youngest sister to a demon in the form of a jackdaw. Potions and charms fade away, next to the otherworldly horrors and crawling blasphemies unleashed by his prompted confession. To see the difference between the two strands of the witch panic, and also to give us a stronger idea of the nature of the crimes of witchcraft, we'll look at the ditty against Helen Fraser and the confession of Andrew Mann. In the case of Helen Fraser, she was a known charmer. She had a previous conviction for the using of charms, which had been dealt with by the Kirk Session of Fawthorne, and which had landed her in the stocks. She is accused of using herbal and folk remedies to heal John Ramsay, a newborn man, although Ramsay adds, during the accusations, that she said a prayer to the devil on his head, possibly to give it more punch than saying she said I should eat sorrel in the early morning. She's denounced as a fraudulent prognosticator, again by the Kirk Session, as a body snatcher, a healer of animals, and proficient in the working of blessings to multiply the catch of the fishers of Newborough. Her enemies also used the opportunity to attach other local grievances to her. The parents of Gilbert Davidson blame her for the marriage of their son to a woman they did not choose, for example. She's also blamed for causing the death of Gilbert Davidson's mother, ostensibly at his wife's request, by taking the strength of her left side and arm from her and driving her into an unnatural rage, so that she died, to quote them, in fury and feebleness. In the end, Helen Fraser faced 19 accusations gathered from local disputes, grievances and misfortunes, and a 20th added as a postscript, simply noting that she was a common witch by open voice and common fame. She was tried in Aberdeen on the 21st of April as part of the General Commission and found guilty on 14 of the 20 points. The ones that were not found to be sufficient grounds for her execution were primarily based around personal disputes with colleagues when she worked at Aikens Hill in the house of Alexander Hardy. She was burnt the same day, at the same time as Catherine Ferris, possibly as a cost-saving measure as the witch panic spending was becoming a source of great anxiety for the Dean of Guild by late April. Six months later, after the long panic of January had burned itself out in the witch fires of May, Andrew Mann, a resident of the parish of Rathven, was interrogated by the Laird of Drum. Mann was an obliging suspect, naming associate after associate following an unspecified period of brutal persuasion. He confesses to having been shown the fires of hell by the beautiful demon Christ Sunday, as well as informing the interrogators of the precise means by which that demon could be summoned and dispelled, Details that the pious hunters calmly note down in the legal document, something that they would possibly have paused at to do if they believed it was effective. 
He names witches in Ochati, in Deskford and Findlater. He confesses to carrying on an affair with the Queen of the Elves and with the Devil Angel Christ Sunday, who also has carnal knowledge of his various associates. They gather at a convention where a black beast rises up from among their number. They take turns kissing him on the anus. All of these things are wrung from Underman by the Laird of Drum and meticulously noted in a document by James Ingalls, a notary, public and official court witness. Andrew Mann was found guilty. The last known suspect tried of at least 80 within Aberdeenshire. The sentence for the crime of witchcraft was usually death and based on the procedures of the ad hoc commissions, almost certainly carried out on the same day as the trial. Little remains because, as previously stated, the immediate and horrific death suffered for the accusations is impossible to appeal. All that remains is either a receipt for expenses or a name on a piece of paper intended to incriminate someone else. Spread the panic a little further. There is evidence that witches were held in the vault and steeple of the town's church over five months. The bitter cold months of winter, shackled in prison awaiting the near certainty of death at a witch trial. At least one of the accused took her own life in prison, hanging herself to cheat the witch hunters. Another died of cold and malnutrition in the vault of the kirk. Both were buried, wrapped in sacks in unmarked graves, denied any dignity even in death. Even those who would face the trial must have held out little hope. The logistics of an execution, particularly for the crime of witchcraft, required lengthy and dedicated preparation. The Dean of Guild's accounts for the year contain itemised line-by-line costings for each witch burning, so we know exactly how much of which materials needed to be gathered, where they needed to be taken, and there are even echoes of how much of a public spectacle these murders were. The burnings of Catherine Fergus and Isabel Trasanchin, known as Scudder, on the 21st of March 1597, required 26 loads of peat, six loads of firewood, four barrels of tar, two iron barrels, a stake, six fathoms of rope, the payment of porters to gather the materials and take them out to the heading hill outside town, and the payment of the fee of John's justice, the town's executioner. Later burnings also set up improvised fences to restrain the crowds. Frequently these were insufficient. Broken spars damaged by the press of the mob were often repaired and replaced. Thomas Dixon, a town official, was refunded the cost of his halberd, which was broken by the attending population at an execution. The care and consideration shown to inconvenienced merchants is a stark contrast to the cruelty shown to the victims of the hunt. Many, such as Isabel Cocky, have their names misspelled on the final record of their lives. Others have their names left blank on the accounts to be filled in later when the Dean of Guild has found out what they were actually called, only for that never to happen and for them to vanish without leaving a name behind. We can verifiably state that at least 80 people were processed by the commissions during the 1597 witch panic in the northeast of Scotland alone. These are 80 verifiable instances of prosecution, arrest or transport of the accused. There are 26 recorded executions, banishments and exiles, brandings, a few acquittals, as well as those who died in prison and 34 people whose names are recorded as accused witches but whose ultimate fate is unknown to us. The total is 80. The machinery of the commission operated on a significant scale. As much of the documentary evidence is no longer extant, we understand that the full scale of this horror will never be truly known. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gather Round. You can find out more about Aberdeen's witch trials at www.aberdeencity.gov.uk forward slash archives.
remember to hit that subscribe button to never miss an episode of Gather Round. Until next time, goodbye.